Dear Father, we thank you for joy, for peace, for love. These are words that the world uses, Father, sometimes very casually, but you use them in your word to describe something very special and unique. The sense in each of us that you give us by your Spirit as we've come to know you in faith, that this world is passing and that the trials and tribulations we know in it are passing with it. And so we can have things like peace that the world use, the world will describe, but only in a temporary sense. We have it, Father, in a real sense, and joy, and a love for one another and for you that's, that's unlike anything we knew before we knew you. It's all the difference in the world, Father, to know that you have uh, assured us a future that doesn't depend on this world and cannot be interrupted by death. In fact, death is the doorway that opens up that opportunity for us to live with you, to be back on this world in a day to come in a new body, living eternally here with you, in a world that can no longer hurt us, in the world as it was meant to be, as you designed it for Adam. It's a promise, Father, that seems so unbelievable to us at this point, so different from our reality today, that it requires faith. And yet, Father, it's so real to us in our hearts that it changes how we live and how we talk and how we think. Or so it should. Thank you, Father, for that mercy. And thank you, Father, for the times that have been difficult in our lives, wherever that has happened. Times like Ezekiel's facing in his life and the story that we're learning in your word this morning, how being amongst God's people in the midst of rebellion is a difficult time. We've all had those moments. Perhaps some of us are still in it, wondering why we should care what you say or ignoring what it means when you tell us that you will discipline us. These things, Father, we push aside for what we want instead. Lord, let us learn from Ezekiel's word this morning that you gave him for what it means to obey truly and to not make excuses for our behaviors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get back to our study. We're in the third division of the book of Ezekiel, the third section of his prophecies. As I mentioned last week, in this section you find the rebellious exiles who are sitting in Babylon with Ezekiel giving excuse after excuse after excuse for why they should not listen to what God has been saying to them through this prophet. And across the eight chapters that constitute this section in the book, we're going to find eight excuses. They don't divide out exactly perfectly. It's not like there's just one per chapter. But across all eight chapters, you find eight excuses. But in response to each of these excuses that the people are offering to the prophet, God speaks back to them again through that same prophet, answering their excuse. And as I mentioned to you at the outset of this study last week, that as we get through each of these eight excuses one at a time, I think you're going to find that they sound pretty familiar At least once we get into them, you're going to see that these are the kinds of things that we tell God too. That at times in a Christian's life, there are moments when we will pull these very same reasons out to explain to ourselves, if not others, why we cannot do what God's asking us to do, or why we're just going to ignore what it says. Because after all, I think it's just human nature to make excuses when you disappoint someone or when you don't do what someone wants. Like the time that man was arriving late for work for the third time in the same week. And when he walked into his office, he found his boss, Mr. Epstein, sitting there at his desk, wondering where his employee was. And the boss looks up at him sarcastically and says, What's your reason for being late this time? I hope you have a good excuse this time. The man sighed and he said, Well, frankly, everything went wrong today. So my wife was supposed to drive me to the ferry this morning, but she didn't get up because she didn't set the alarm and we both overslept. So she got ready in 10 minutes and drove me straight to the harbor, but I missed the ferry anyway. So rather than let you down, 
I swam across the river. I climbed the mountain. I borrowed a bike and I rode the last 20 miles to get here to the office because I didn't want to miss my work day. And the boss, of course, listens patiently to the whole story. But without missing a beat, he responds, you really expect me to believe that story? No woman can get ready in 10 minutes. I knew roughly half the audience would like that joke. Given my track record, that's actually pretty good. Point being, our excuses rarely sound as good to other people as they do to us. And they never sound good to God. So in last week we studied the first half of this chapter where the Lord was asking Ezekiel to get ready for what was coming in terms of these excuses. And he did it by this new charade, another one of these street performances that Ezekiel is told to put on for the people. He was told, pack your belongings like you're going on a trip, dig a hole in the wall of the courtyard that surrounds your home, and then go through that hole with your backpack on, pretending like you're going into exile. Because he wanted Ezekiel to depict to the people what had been told to them already from God through Ezekiel, which is that all of the Jews who remain in the city of Jerusalem were about to experience very much that same thing. They're going to be captured and taken out into exile. And this news wasn't new to the exiles. God had told them before, but because they hadn't listened to this story before, the Lord asked Ezekiel to tell them once more in this more dramatic fashion. And it worked. I mean, it worked at least in the sense that it got their attention. But after they saw that display, and after they heard his explanation of what it meant, they just went on their way. They were neither impressed, nor were they believing in what the prophet depicted to them. But still, there must have been something stirring in their heart, which I think is the natural reaction to the Word of God. Something comes to bear in your heart on why what you're hearing should matter to you. It's evident in the fact that it then leads them to have to invent excuses for why they don't need to pay attention to it. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. When you hear something that you don't care about, it should just go in one ear and out the other. But when you hear the Word of God, even if you don't prefer it, it stirs in you to a point where you have to at least explain to yourself why you're going to ignore it. And so they offer excuses, starting with the first one today, for why those words, those testimonies of Ezekiel, were not worth considering. As we get into the chapter today in verse 21, you're not going to see them share this excuse directly with Ezekiel. They don't go up to him and tell him why they don't believe him. But the Lord has heard their mumblings amongst themselves. And so it's the Lord who brings this to Ezekiel, informing him of the excuses that are being shared about what they're hearing. And then he tells Ezekiel how to respond. So let's look at the first excuse. Verse 21. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, what is this proverb you people have concerning the land of Israel, saying, The days are long and every vision fails? We stop right there. There's your excuse. And the Lord shares it with Ezekiel, and he begins with this rhetorical question What is this thing that you guys say all the time? Son of man, what is this proverb you people have? He's referring to a cynical saying that circulated within apostate Jewish culture. And this is true even when they were back in the land in Jerusalem. This is not a new proverb. But what's happening now is the exiles have pulled this thing out of their culture, pulled out this saying, and they're repeating it now in their current circumstances as a defense for their unbelief. And the proverb says, The days are long and every vision fails. And what it means is that things foretold by prophets always turn out to be false because life just goes on unchanged. The days are long. It's a very similar sentiment to what Peter tells us will be repeated during the last days of our age. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 3.3. 3. 
He says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his second coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So Peter says in the last days, which I will tell you is our day for other reasons. I mean, that's not something we have time to get into, but today is the day he was speaking about. And he says, in that time to come, people will mock the promise of the Bible, which declares Jesus will one day return, and when he does, judgment will follow. And people say, what? They say, oh, the days are long. At least in the sense of the proverb. They say, everything just continues the way it has from the beginning. You tell us he's coming. Hello, it's been 2,000 years. I don't see him here yet. It just seems like it's a false promise because everything has been the same since we can remember. And so they have nothing to fear. That's the premise. It's the same sense you see in this proverb for the exiles. They're saying to Ezekiel, there's not going to be a dramatic judgment like you keep telling us is coming. And the confidence they have for that fact is in saying, we've never seen it. We've never seen the city laid waste. Now, their cynicism is foolish, but it's especially foolish when you remember their circumstances. Because they're in Babylon. These are the people who have already experienced a dramatic upheaval in the city of Jerusalem, right? It's not like they're sitting back in Jerusalem scoffing at someone who's telling them that one day their city might be sieged. No, that's already happened. That's why they are where they are. And all Ezekiel is adding is saying, hey, it's going to happen again. Only this time, it's going to be a complete destruction. Not just them coming in and taking a few of you. They're coming back, and they're going to destroy it all. That's what we've been reading about up to this point. How that's all going to happen. And so here's these foolish exiles whose own circumstance should let them know that there is a good chance this is true. Nevertheless, they're sitting in exile saying, never going to happen. Now the second half of the proverb is even more absurd. The second half says, and every vision fails. Which is a way of saying... Every prophet gets it wrong. On the one hand, that skepticism is is kind of understandable because false prophets had been victimizing Israel for centuries and still were. And the people then had become accustomed to taking any prediction with a grain of salt because a lot of them turned out to be wrong. But, here again, their present circumstances in Babylon should have caused them to recognize that not all the prophets are wrong because Jeremiah, for one, the prophet to Israel in Jerusalem, who's still there at this point in history, had told them that they should expect to fall to Babylon, and he told them that before it happened. And it did happen. And then even before that, centuries earlier, you had Isaiah specifically saying that Assyria would come in and take the northern kingdom, and alluding to another capture later by Babylon. And those things have come to pass. So, of all the people in the world, the exiles in Babylon should have been people who would be willing to acknowledge, yeah, sometimes prophets are right. In other words, the real ones, the real ones are right. Nevertheless, they blindly assert, can't trust a prophet. Prophets are always wrong. Their vision always fails. So with that proverb, they assure themselves, we got nothing to worry about. Have you ever noticed yourself using this excuse? And I know at first glance you'd think, I've never said those words. No, I don't mean it that way. Maybe not in those words, but maybe you've thought it something like this. Maybe you've said, I know God's word says I shouldn't be doing such and such, and that, that sin has consequences, and, but so far so good. Right? I've avoided disaster to this point. Things seem fine. I can control this. I can handle it. So I'm just going to continue ignoring the Word of God and it's going to work out. Why do you say that? Well, because so far so good. 
In essence, that kind of thinking is no different than the thinking that is behind this proverb that's being said in Among the Exiles, right? The command we find in the Word of God directs us into holiness and obedience, but we take it more as a suggestion than we do as anything serious, anything we really have to worry about. And even though we know God is good, and we know His intentions for us in His Word are for good, to preserve us from the destructive consequences of sin and and to lead us into a happier, more fulfilling life to Him. I mean, we know that intellectually, but we still ignore His instructions at times. We all do this. I'm not saying there's somebody in here particularly. (laughs) There's nobody in here that this isn't true for at some level. Because otherwise, how do you rationalize our behavior? How would you explain a Christian doing things we know are wrong, which we know where in the Bible we could even find them if we wanted to go look, but we still do them? How do you rationalize that? It's not schizophrenia, right? There's some reasoning behind it. The only reasoning I could come to in most cases is this general desire to ignore what might happen as a result. We just don't take God at His word. It's like burying your head in the sand. Ironically, when the Lord is merciful to us, and He is all the time, when He delays bringing a consequence, in other words, what do we do with that? We treat that mercy as excuse to continue Because it seems to back up our theory that nothing bad's ever going to happen. We tell ourselves, so far, so good, and we know others who have experienced consequence for doing very much similar things that we're doing, but somehow it's not going to happen to us. We are the exception, or they're the exception, or however we explain it to ourselves, or maybe we just ignore it altogether. We all use this excuse, I think, from time to time, even if we don't name it. But, just like these folks in the exiles, we're fooling ourselves. And we're certainly not fooling God. In fact, I'm not even sure we're fooling ourselves, are we? Don't we know better in our spirit? Don't we understand that the Word of God can be trusted and the Lord will be faithful to it? And so when we play with our sin, isn't our spirit aware of the fact that we're playing a game of roulette? Sooner or later, if we persist in what we're doing, our number's going to come up. And I'm not talking about in some kind of eternal sense. We're not talking about hell and heaven here. We're just saying that God at some point may take His hand of mercy off us just enough, just a little bit, so that we start to feel the burn of the fire that we're playing with, right? Just to help us, ultimately. But the Bible does warn of a situation that that we should all be seriously concerned with if we get into this mindset of the proverb, and that is of a hardened heart. You can define a hardened heart as reaching the point where you believe your own lies, where these things we're telling ourselves as excuses, we actually think they're true. That's how I think the exiles in Babylon are behaving. I think that's why God refers to them as a rebellious house. They had come to believe their own lies about God. They were repeating this proverb among themselves, even though they had plenty of proof that showed them that their view was wrong. I mean, they had enough proof from their history to know prophets are not always wrong, and to know that God has not failed to do what He said to do. There's proof, but they don't see that anymore. That's a hardened heart. So how does the Lord deal with this excuse? How do you think He should deal with this kind of a problem? Well, very simply, He just renders it void. Look at the next verse, 23. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord, I will make this proverb cease, so that they will no longer use it as a proverb in Israel. But tell them, The days draw near as well as the fulfillment of every vision. For there will no longer be any false vision or flattering divination, within the house of Israel. For I, the Lord, will speak, and whatever word I speak will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. So the Lord asks Ezekiel to give them this response to their excuse. He says, I'm going to make their proverbs cease. 
What he means is he's going to bring it to an end by proving it's wrong so that the culture sees no reason to repeat it anymore. He says the days are going to draw near here where everything he has said is going to happen is going to actually happen, not just in the general sense that one day it will happen, but in the sense that it will happen while they're still here to see it. The point is that those who have been saying it will never happen will get to see all of it. I like to say it this way. He's calling Israel's bluff. You think it's not true? Let me show you that it's true. And then he adds this interesting point in verse 24. He says, There will also no longer be any false visions or flattering divination, as he says, within the house of Israel. So what he's saying is, not only am I going to prove the accuracy of my words, but then at the same time, I'm going to frustrate the words of anybody who's a false prophet amongst you. And notice he says these false prophets were the ones giving flattering divination, or you could say flattering prophecies to the people. That is to say, they were giving prophecies to people that people wanted to hear. And that's hardly surprising, because that's what every false teacher and prophet has ever done. They've always sought the approval of men rather than the approval of God. In the New Testament, Paul calls this kind of flattering, tickling ears. Right? Tickling ears produces a counterfeit joy that isn't rooted in anything real, so it doesn't last. You've had people like this, right? Friends, workmates, I mean, maybe even in a religious context, someone is a pastor, who you got the sense, they just tell you what you like. If you've ever been in a management position, you've had people under you that have to work for you, and you get advice, you can always tell the yes guys and and yes ladies, right? These are the ones who you don't really think they have any compass. They're trying to read you more than they are trying to give you facts. You quickly figure out those are not people you can trust in because they're just telling you what you want to hear, and sometimes you need to hear things you don't want to hear. That's what false teaching is built on. Because it's not related to God in any sense, it's not directed by God, it's not for His glory, it's not by the inspiration of His Spirit, well, what's left then? It can only be for the adoring crowds. And so I've got to tell you what you want. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And they sow confusion among people because they encourage skepticism of prophecy by their false words. You know, so many times someone will say, this is what's going to happen. Oh, did you know that this event in the Middle East or this event in the world, it means such and such. Oh, did you know the world's going to end on September 23rd? Didn't we just hear that one recently? I thought it was really interesting, wherever that came from. I don't know what nutcase brought that one up, but... Wherever that came from, do you know that like on September 22nd they recanted? On the day before it was supposed to happen, they were already backing off. I guess they could look at the sky and it wasn't hot enough yet. They figured it's not going to happen. I don't know what their thinking was, but they were really to back off even before. It was going to be wrong. They knew it. False prophets. And in Israel's time, there had been so much of this nonsense going on. So many men calling themselves prophets when they weren't really prophets that the people had come to mix that group up with the Jeremiah's and the Ezekiel's and Isaiah's of their day. It was all kind of just one big mess from their point of view. They lumped them all together. And so when they do that, they just can ignore them all because they paint them all with a broad brush. And they neglected to notice something. They neglected to notice that there were some guys, like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, who never got it wrong, who never got it wrong. That's what got lost in the noise from the other guys muddying all the water. So the Lord is going to fix that problem. He's going to fix it by bringing His Word to pass, as He has been doing, but doing it more quickly, accelerating the pace, I think, so that the people of that day would see it. And then secondly, He's going to rid the noise. He's going to drop the noise level of all these false voices so that it will thwart the Proverbs saying that prophets are always wrong. Because we know, obviously, a false prophet has no power. (laughs) He's not speaking with the authority of the Lord. So what he says never had much chance to come true anyway. But you know what? Sometimes you get lucky. 
In other words, sometimes what comes out of your mouth happens to come true, but it's not because you had any insight. Other times, they'll prophesy in a way that's so ambiguous that you're not quite sure. You know the most classic case of that in our culture? Horoscopes, right? It's divination. It's not godly. It's from an evil source. And its power is not in its knowledge of the future. Its power is in its ambiguity. Today, something interesting will happen to you. Oh my gosh. I need to be on the lookout for that. I mean, you know, I'm being silly, but that's the kind of thing you'll read in those things, right? Today you'll meet an interesting person. Who said you do or don't? And a lot of what came out of the mouths of false prophets had that kind of, you know, ambiguity for the sake of maintaining the appearance of prophecy. And God was now prepared to sort that out. And so what he's going to do is he's going to actively oppose the predictions that come out of the mouths of false prophets. So when a false prophet flattered someone by saying something like, well, God is going to bring you a healing, what we're hearing now is God would actually actively ensure that their infirmity remained. Or if a false prophet would promise someone riches, the Lord would bring that person to ruin. Or promises of safety would lead to disaster, promises of childbearing would lead to a mother who was barren, and so on. So sooner or later, people come to understand the difference between the true prophets and the false prophets. In fact, I would imagine it probably didn't take very long before the last thing people wanted was to be the subject of a false prophet's vision. Don't say anything about me, please, because I've seen what you're doing to everybody else, and I don't want part of that. The Lord's going to make sure that there are no false prophets. In fact, in the next chapter, when we get there, you'll see how far He's going to go to ensure that, because He has more to say about them. Meanwhile... Everything that Ezekiel said is going to come to pass, and it's going to come to pass quickly, he says. Notice he says, In your days, O rebellious house, these things will be carried out. So he's hastening them, to a degree, I guess, in response to their stubbornness. Those who had scoffed are going to live to see that they were wrong. And I think this is another thing God will do from time to time with anyone. He will, he will gain our attention this way. So Israel's first excuse was able to survive in this culture because of two factors which the Lord is now dealing with. First, the people of Israel had short memories on God's faithfulness. And they gave their attention, secondly, they gave their attention to false voices that drowned out the truth. So you have short memories about God being faithful to His Word, combined with our recent memories of false prophets who never seem to get it right. And it contributes to this cynicism for everything from God's Word, for for thinking about God, for walking with God. The whole thing starts to look like a game. And it's a very well-crafted skepticism by the enemy. He's working very hard to get that very outcome. And sometimes we make it easy for him. And that same problem, I think, exists today. And so it would make sense today that we should see people still using this excuse, and therefore we should also expect to see God still working a similar solution today. So he will be amplifying his voice in your life at times by showing the truth of his word to you in specific terms, and not necessarily in negative terms. I don't mean that this is always coming from a negative point of view. Sometimes he'll bring to pass some promise that is of a value of mercy and grace to you, but also as an evidence that he's working with you, that he's around. I've seen it happen many times that when someone comes to faith, this is commonly with an adult, I've noticed, but you'll see someone who comes out of a very rough background, and maybe in their 40s or 50s or 60s, they come to faith. And for them, that's, you know, that's leaving behind a long legacy of a life without God. It can be a, such a shock of, who am I now, and is this real? Or is this just a midlife crisis? You know, people are sometimes trying to sort it out in their own head. 
And that's when that false voice can get a hold of you. That's when you're not clear about whether God's word is really to be trusted. And God cuts through that for these people sometimes in a glorious way by giving them a gift of some type. I knew a guy that had smoked his whole life and he could never quit. And his wife had tried to bribe him at times along the way to get him to quit smoking. And he never could come up to the, the, the strength of it. And then he had this movement with God in his life. And I think he was probably in his 50s at the time. And it brought to him a desire to stop smoking that was instantaneous. He never looked back. It never required any bribing. It was not that that was a key issue for God, like it was a huge sin or anything. I think it was a gift to him because he wanted to quit. What it did in the moment was it told him, something's happened to me because I could never do this before. I have no explanation for this except God. And that's a way of God cutting through the noise, showing his faithfulness. He does that. I think of it like two volume knobs on a radio where you've got to turn up God, you've got to amplify God, and you've got to turn down the noise of the false voices in your life. You don't necessarily do that in your own power. It's about attending to what God is doing. But the point is, you have to do both. Because the more you remember the faithfulness of God and the less that you attend to the proven liars that are in our culture, the more reason you will have to act in obedience to the truth. A guy named William Grinnell once put it this way, What more powerful consideration can be thought on to make us true to God than the faithfulness and truth of God to us? It's a fancy way of saying, what better motivation to serve Him than you see Him serving you? That is, serving you in, his, in, in what He does for you. So your purpose of study in God's Word should be including some time for you to reflect on His faithfulness. It shouldn't just be about what's new in the Bible today. It should be also about remembering what He's done through the Word of God in your life in the past. Because those moments of grace that you know have come to you in the past, those are moments where He stepped in to alter the course of your life to provide you comfort or to provide you in some other fashion, some kind of knowledge or some kind of encouragement, uh, take you through a trial, uh, strengthen you for some test. All of those things he did were on a path of developing you in spiritual maturity. And if you forget the path you're on, and you just imagine you're standing on one stone in the middle of nowhere, it's like starting over again in your own walk with Christ. Your your attitude toward your walk with Christ will never mature because you're not looking at his testimony enough. Give some time to that in your study. Where's God taking me? How did I get to where I am now? And that'll encourage you for where you're going. Those memories are a testimony and they encourage greater faithfulness. As Grinnell said, nothing gives cause to be true to God more than remembering that faithfulness. I think the exiles have forgotten that. Israel had this huge history of testimony of God being faithful to them. Where was that in their minds? Gone. So we have to turn up that volume on that side of the equation. And on the other side, you've got to grow in your discernment for where you go for good counsel and where you don't go. Our world's filled with false prophets. And don't think about the guy walking around in sackcloth and ashes. You know, screaming, yea, verily. That's not what we're talking about anymore. That may have been true years and years ago, but it's not what we see today, normally. What do you see today? The false prophets of today, they're daytime talk show hosts. They write best-selling books. Or they're the well-meaning but ungodly neighbor or relative who always has advice for you that every time something happens in your life, you're getting a text from that person, and you know they don't know God from a hole in the ground. But somehow they have all the advice you need, right? I mean, these people may be well-meaning, and we're not saying we cut them off, but what we are saying is be discerning. When you rely on those voices, doing so even when they prove themselves worthless in the end, I think you get to the point where you start thinking like these exiles, right? You assume every voice is false. You just start looking at everything cynically. Every teacher is wrong. That pastor did me wrong, so I don't want to hear from the next. 
That Bible teacher, that friend, that neighbor, they did me wrong. They didn't know what they were talking about. No one does. Eventually, you just turn away from God altogether. That's a place of a hard heart. You remember the story of Zacharias, um, the father of John the Baptist? Remember when he first learns that Elizabeth, his wife, who's been barren, is going to suddenly have a child who turns out to be John the Baptist? Remember how that, that happens while this priest, Zacharias, is a priest. He's serving in the temple that day. He's actually in the holy place. And this is what happens, Luke 1.13. But the angel said to him, an angel appeared, that's the background, an angel appears to him inside the, the temple. And it, it freaks out Zacharias, <laughs> for obvious reasons. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, speaking of Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's pretty good news, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you want to believe that? What does he say to this? Yippee! Hallelujah! It's about time. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, how will I know this for certain? (laughs) Hello, you're talking to an angel. You're in the holy place. I just appeared to you. What is this? Chopped meat? I'm an angel. (laughs) The angel answered and said to him, what I just said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. You see my name tag? I've been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in the proper time. I think that's very much like God silencing the proverb. So the question you have to ask about that whole moment, it's funny, it's got, you know, we're all kind of laughing at him because we think, what an idiot. But think about it again for a moment. Why would he not have agreed with this angel's revelation? Wouldn't the appearance of an angel have been enough? I don't think he's an idiot. I think that's kind of playing it too simply. I think the reason this happened is because of the false teaching in that culture and the false promises of that culture. I mean, how many times do you think somebody prayed over this guy or his wife or prophesied to this family that your wife's going to have that son that you've been waiting for? I can feel it coming, Zacharias. And they're probably at this point in their 40s or 50s because it says you know they've been trying for a while and she's barren. So you know he's probably had it up to here with that stuff. And even an angel appearing to him in the holy place, in the temple, is still not enough for this guy. I think that's an indication to you of how far the hardened heart can go in dismissing clear and obvious truth because of the track record we have in dealing with false voices. I'm I'm assuming all of that here, of course, but it sure does make sense to me in light of what you see elsewhere in Scripture. I don't otherwise know how to explain this guy's intense skepticism in the moment. What did the Lord do to this guy to discipline him? Effectively, the very same thing that he did to those in exile. He says, you're going to see this happen. I'm going to make sure that you see it. And in the meantime, you're not going to be able to seek a lot of advice from other people. Now, he did it by shutting off his voice as a punishment. But the effect of that is to cut him off from everybody. You're going to just have to sit and think about this moment in silence for a while. If we persist in listening to wrong voices, I'm not saying what the Lord is going to do. I mean, he has an infinite variety of options, and he most often chooses merciful ones for our sake. But let's not test that 
Because if you place your trust in other things besides the Word of God, that is, in things you have control over, because you prefer, in cynical mindset, you prefer to have things you can control rather than relying on the faithfulness of others. I've seen that in people. They start to trust in their wealth or their status or something else that they can touch and feel and hold. Well, God loves to throw that stuff up in the air and and let the wind carry it away. He might shock your financial world, rock you a little bit there, and remind you that, Now, it's something else you should be trusting in. Or if you like the opinions of godless friends or the talking heads on TV rather than listening to pastors and elders in your church, maybe he'll just frustrate every plan that those guys come up with for your sake just to show you that they're wrong. And if you like living by the flesh instead of the Spirit, well, maybe he'll bring your flesh to an end. Paul talks about that in extreme cases. So all I'm saying is the Lord doesn't want you to experience these things. He wants you to follow Him in His Word, but He'll do what's necessary to get the noise out of your life and to get the volume up for His faithfulness. We can do it the easy way or we can do it the hard way. After all, if God was willing to put Himself on a Roman cross for the sake of sinful people, doesn't that prove that He wants something good for us in the end? So if He directs us in His Word concerning some aspect of our life, can't we know that He's telling the truth? and that it's for our best. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense, right, that he'd be stealing our fun or denying us what we need now in his word after he put himself on a cross for us to start the process of relationship. The the two don't make any sense. He's telling you what he knows is good because we don't know it. And while his grace knows no limits, his patience does. So the excuse of so far so good is like daring God to speed up the plan and expose our hardened heart. So don't follow in the footsteps of the exiles. Now we have a few more verses in this chapter, just two more. These verses give us a time to examine the second excuse. They come in just these two verses, but they're so closely connected to the first one, it's really not changing the subject very much. Look at verse 27. He says, Son of man, behold, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies of things far off. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever word I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. It does sound very similar, and it is, but there's one key difference here in this second excuse. And it starts the same way. The Lord comes back to Ezekiel again, says, Hey, I've heard something else. You're going to want to hear this. And what they're saying now is, Okay, he's truly a prophet. What he says will happen. But it's not going to come for so long. It's long off. It's not happening anytime soon. This is a variant on the earlier excuse. So how would I relate the two? Well, in the first one, the people are saying, nothing ever changes, and the prophets are always wrong. In this case, they're saying, no, the prophets are correct, but they say things about events so far away, we don't need to concern ourselves with them. We don't need to pay attention to them. I think this is similar to the kind of excuse that we experience today in a totally different way. Uh, You ever hear scientists tell you that in a few billion years, the, the sun is going to exhaust all its fuel, and it's going to go supernova? And when that happens, it violently explodes and it's going to grow to consume the entire solar system and all the planets will be burned up, the earth will be completely extinguished, it won't even exist anymore. This is what they tell you is going to happen in a few billion years. Does that worry you? And putting aside, putting aside your Christian worldview for a minute, which would you know, contradict what they're saying, but, but even if you didn't have that, would you be worried? Is the world worried about this? They're not worried about it. What is it about that that keeps people from worrying about it? Isn't it that little phrase, in a few billion years? And adding the word few didn't help. We hear the prediction and we're like, oh, that sounds terrible. What's for dinner? Doesn't matter, right? Because the timetable puts it so far outside our experience that we have no reason to care about it. None whatsoever. 
if we were, again, not Christians, we might say, well, you know, some generation a billion years from now is going to be in trouble. Glad that's not me. That's how we would think about it. It's the same thinking, I think, that's quoted in that earlier passage from Second Peter, which is, everything just continues from the beginning. We don't have to think about it. It's just another variant of it. So the exiles weren't listening to Ezekiel's words because they said it doesn't pertain to us because it's going to be so far in advance, but they weren't listening very carefully because you remember one of the predictions that Ezekiel gave them from just a couple of chapters ago? You know, the whirly cherubim land and you know, escort the glory of God. One of the things that he said it would happen in the context of the city being destroyed was that there were those two current elders of the city that he names who are currently in position in the city. They were going to die. Remember that? And that's what led Ezekiel to say, oh, are you going to kill everyone? Well, think about it. These are contemporaries. They're men who are real. People in the city knew their name. People in the exiles would have remembered them. They were living men who were still alive in that day. And the prediction, Ezekiel said, is they're going to die. Well, that's not a billion years from now. I mean, by, by any basic logic, you, you have to conclude that's going to come sometime relatively soon before these guys die naturally. And yet, they're willfully blind. They're telling themselves, oh, these things are about, you know, distant, distant activity. If you've never used the first excuse, or maybe you don't remember using it, perhaps you've used the second excuse when it comes to God's Word. They're really two sides of the same coin. One is saying God's Word is not true. The other one's saying God's Word is true, just not yet. The Lord's saying He's coming back for His church. You know, the rapture is about to happen. There'll be a judgment for the believer after that. We're going to be held accountable for how we're living. It's supposed to happen at any day. Brides waiting for their groom to come. All the things the Bible says about the master goes away and he will come back at a time you do not know. And, but it's not going to happen today. <laughs> it's not going to happen tomorrow. I know I'm having this little adulterous affair on the side. I'll, you know, I'll wrap that up soon enough, but it won't happen before that's over. One thing that it's always been on my mind when I think about sin in my own life, occasionally this little thought will pop into my mind. What if I was engaged in that sin right as the rapture happened? <laughs> You know, when you were a teenager in high school, somebody would bring a magazine. And you're like, oh, he has that magazine. You know, and you're in the behind the school. like back, back in that time, no one has magazines anymore. It's worse now. They do it on their phone. But so you're like, flip, flip, flip. All of a sudden, a bright light, and there's Jesus. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Never happened before. I don't know how I got that. I mean, it's silly, but I'm trying to make the point that don't we want that moment to be one where we're on our knees praying right at the time of the rapture? Wouldn't we love to time it like that, right? I mean, of course, the point is not to be momentarily righteous. The point is to have a life of it. But the one who says it's not going to happen today is the one repeating this same kind of, of lie to themselves. I believe it. It's true. It's just nothing on my mind today. If the first excuse could be labeled denial, I think the second one could be labeled delay. We're not denying the truth. It's just so far off we don't care. Like a supernova. God's word is interesting in theory, but not very practical to us today. I mean, after all, how much practicality does a rapture hold for me today? You know, I've got bills to pay, Steve. I'm, I'm wrestling with this issue or that issue, and I've got all of these concerns in my life, and you're telling me I've got to be worried about Christ coming back one day. I mean, you know, we'll get there when the day comes. Right now, this is what I care about. That's a mentality that says it's true, but not today. And it's a damaging mindset. God gave us the Bible so that we would understand how to live today. In other words, He would show us things that matter today. I think it's one of the most common excuses in the church today for why people just ignore and flat out disobey the Word is that they say, it's not relevant. It's not practical. And you see pastors... 
pandering to their congregations by advertising sermons that are relevant or practical, which I think has become code word for Bible-free preaching. Because of that, I think for the church generally today, you have a culture that's been trained to acknowledge that the Bible is true. I mean, rarely do you find a church anymore, at least a sound church, who would just outright declare the Bible is not valid. You don't see that very often. Not a real church. But even with acknowledging it's true, they'll still say, but it doesn't really speak to my circumstances. It doesn't really speak to my needs, to my situation. And part of the problem with why that culture has developed is just the fact that there's a lot of really bad Bible teaching. There's a lot of men in the pulpit who could not find their way out of a paper bag, much less rightly divide the Word of God. And when our people sit under that kind of nonsense week after week, it just dulls your senses, it distorts your view of what the Bible's trying to teach, it makes the whole thing sound irrelevant. It's the same situation that caused the exiles to do what they're doing and to say what they're saying. They had false teachers, false prophets, that cheapened their appreciation for the truth. And in the end, even though they were willing to acknowledge there was truth, there are real things from God, prophets are true, whatever, it didn't make any sense to them. It wasn't relevant, it wasn't meaningful, so they could dismiss it. So they said it concerned distant things. I remember when I first started to teach this, and I mentioned it to people, I heard from a couple of friends, pastors in a couple cases, who said to me, I would never consider teaching that book to my congregation. Never! What are you doing? They said, no one's going to sit and listen to it. The content is too far removed from their everyday experience. It's filled with all kinds of strange things. And as I got that counsel, at first, I started to take in those words and consider them, and I began to worry, well, maybe this isn't the right book. Maybe I made a mistake. And then I realized, that's the very excuse that God is condemning in His Word, ironically, in this book. God gave us this book for a reason. And if we think it's too remote, it's only because we've forgotten the power of the Word of God or it's not being taught properly. Some of the events of this book are very distant. And some of them are right around the corner. We just haven't read those parts yet. And some of the situations in the book are unique to ancient Israel and exiles in Babylon. But some of them are as relevant to us as our diary. You only have to look deeper into the Word to see that He has something to say for you. And if you're not seeing it, the problem is not the Word. Like I told those pastors after I kind of got over their words of discouragement, I said, you know, somebody's got to teach it. You guys aren't doing it. i got to do it. <laughs> so the solution to ending the second excuse is the same as the earlier one. In verse 28 he says, I'm just going to make sure that none of my words are going to be delayed any longer. We're going to speak in ways, he's going to speak in ways through Ezekiel that describe near-term events so that he can bring them to pass so that the people who discounted them will be in the position to see them fulfilled. And I think that's what God's doing today. I think we're living in days when the cynicism is high, when the appreciation for God's Word is low, when the false voices are everywhere, and the way the Lord is going to cut through that noise is he's fulfilling prophecies all around us. We're living in the last days, as many of you know from teaching you've heard me do elsewhere. We're living in the last days, and the Bible is replete with evidence of that. We're not making this stuff up. We're not the guy in the street corner with the placard that says the end of the world is coming. We're looking at the Bible rationally, and we're seeing the signs God said to look for. And much is going to happen. It's going to happen soon. Now is not the time to doubt the Word of God or to think it's not going to happen in your lifetime. It's all true. It's all relevant. And that's why we give our attention to it at this church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for a relevant word from a man who lived thousands of years ago, speaking to a culture very different from ours. 
But it's because it can still make so much sense to us today that we know it's from you and not from mere men. Help us, Father, to put aside our excuses for obedience. If we've ever said that we don't trust what you've told us in your word, or if we've ever said that it's not going to happen soon enough to care, then, Father, I pray you would correct that in our hearts. Do it gently and with mercy, we ask, Father. For we are sinners and we are prone to doing these things, but we seek for better. And thank you for the church here and wherever it exists in the world, Father, that honors you in your word. For that is the the cornerstone of the church today, Father. Christ, the word, preached to the nations. Thank you for the blessing that we have it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.